Good evening to all the undead ghouls and monsters. We are your horror hosts for tonight's Last Rites. It is the witching hour, and this podcast is going to be a two-part podcast. This is going to consist of Olin and myself's top ten horror movies of all time. Top ten list for me is going to start with Scream 1996. This is the first installment of the Scream series. Um, The reason I chose this was at the time horror movies were kind of dead and there were a lot of B-flick movies just coming out. People just pumping out just movie after movie. You know, anybody thought that they could be a horror movie director and writer and, and whatnot. And the movies just were not very good. So, Wes Craven put this movie out with uh, the help of Kevin Williamson. Um, And at the time, Kevin Williamson was extremely hot as a writer. Uh, He had a lot of uh, titles under his belt. And so, they put together this movie. And it was just, to me, it was like a, a breath of fresh air. It was like a revival of the horror genre. Because after this, uh, everybody kind of started taking horror a little more seriously, and I was really, I was really happy that it had that resurgence. Um, at least in my opinion, I think this is where the resurgence happened. Uh, they had, you know, so many just awful movies in the '80s and, and the early '90s, and it wasn't until when actually Scream was put on the market that it was just, like I, like I said, it's just a breath of fresh air uh, to me. It was, Everything and anything that you know, a horror. Anybody who's in the horror um, genre wanted, you know, in a movie. Um, it had, you know, the serious, the seriousness of, of, you know, the killing that was going on. It had a whole new character, original character. Uh, although people could argue that, you know, this character, you know, could have been a, a slight rip off of, you know, other, other horror uh, icons, but. Still, I personally think, you know, for Ghostface um, being in this movie was just a, a, a brand new take on, you know, a, a horror villain. <clears throat> uh, they, based it, they based it off the actual uh, Gainesville River. Um, so that was, had a, I wouldn't say truth to it, but, you know, it had some, some sense of, Or I don't think that's the right word, um, but they had they had you know that they had the uh, a good background uh, to base you know their killer or their their horror icon on like most movies like uh, what was it uh, Ed Gein you know for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, I think was uh, was their basis for that character uh, yeah so Wes Craven. Kevin Williamson, 1996 Scream. Uh, this had a, a pretty good cast. Had David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, uh, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, and the always lovely Drew Barrymore. Yeah, even uh, Jamie Kennedy was in it, right? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The, the one thing I liked uh, also about the movie is the, the satire that they made fun of all the old horror movies from before you know they basically put it into this movie 
and Jamie Kennedy was the man uh, who was delivering all of that to everybody, basically educating all these people on, you know, what not to do uh, when there's a serial killer around. Yeah, lots of really good references, callbacks. Uh, uh, it was a really horror fan, horror film. For anybody who was like a, a, a true fan of, of, of past horror films before 1996, this was like a like a really good uh, callback to all of those uh, tropes and all of those uh, um, mechanics of, of the horror film genre. Sort of brought to life, really, on the screen. Yeah, that's extremely well written. I mean, they couldn't have done it better uh, with anybody else. I think uh, Kevin Williamson, you know, hit this one out of the park. And that's why, like I said, I, I consider it the, uh, the, the resurgence of, of horror as a whole um, because of this movie. Yeah, a real um, turn of the wrench, I think, at the time. Um, even with the newness of, of the, the uh, character of Ghostface, um, Roger Jackson was the, the voice, right? Yeah, I read that. I actually uh, didn't know for the longest time who it was. And... Uh, I don't know if it's just the machine um, that he was using behind his voice, you know, how it amplified it, or that actually is his, just his voice amplified because it sounds yeah. like the same voice in all the other screen movies. Right. So I don't know if he's just getting, he's getting paid for that, if he's actually being credited for it, or if they had just come up with a device that sounds like him so they don't have to use him, you know, to pay him those royalties. Yeah, just the, the cadence with which he delivers the lines is... Uh has become iconic by yeah, now. Yeah, very very sinister sounding. Um, although now it's a little more comedic because of just how many of them there, there are. Uh, but it still, you know, it, it was it was a whole new game changer. Right, right. Yeah, I guess it got, it got memed at this point. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, so that was number 10. Um, my number 9 is a little ditty I like to call The Monster Squad. This is back in 1987. This is basically The Goonies meets Universal Monsters. Yep, that describes it. Yeah, they, they uh, are a club of preteens who idolize the Universal uh, classic monsters. Um, and which, you know, that's how, that's how I look at it, is like they, are, they were the Goonies, uh, but they were calling themselves The Monster Squad. And the villains in the movie were basically the iconic universal monsters. Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, the Mummy, Gillman, or the creature from the Black Lagoon, whichever you want to call them. Although on this one, the uh, Frankenstein's monster was uh, separated uh, from the uh, villainous group and had wandered onto the side of the actual monster squad, so... He was not um, a part of their their little shindig. This one was uh, directed by Fred Decker, uh, written by Shane Black, and also Fred Decker. Uh, Shane Black, as we all know, he um, launched the Lethal Weapon series. Uh, he also did Predator. Uh, he did Iron Man Three, and he's his name's attached to a lot of a lot of stuff. The Long Kiss Goodnight. Uh, He's just a really good uh, writer. Uh, this one has uh, basically, a, at the time, um, I think the, the dad, who was also the cop, was the only kind of well-known character actor. Um, 
in the series. Uh, his name was uh, Stephen Macht, and he played uh, Detective Crenshaw, who was the father of the, the lead Monster Squad kid. Um, but these were, like I said, these are kind of relatively like unknown uh, actors. Um, uh, there's a couple character actors in it that were that are known. Like if you saw their face, you would know who they were. Yeah, you'd be like, hey, it's that guy. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, one of the sad things about this movie, though, uh, was a few years later, um, after the movie, the the kid who played Horace, or what they, they referred to as Fat Kid, yeah, uh, in the movie, uh, actually uh, died in real life. Uh, and I think it was. I don't actually remember it. I don't know if it was like asthma or something something weird. Uh, they did a documentary with the uh, the guy who played Rudy, uh, Ryan Lambert, and uh, he was explaining like what was happening like with him um, and how he passed. So, but you know, it it kind of sucks. Um, it was a little bit of a downer to find that out, but you know the the rest of the cast they pretty much all got together to do the the anniversary for it. Uh, this movie was uh, one of my favorites growing up. I actually got a VHS copy of it and lent it to a neighbor and she destroyed it and I was never able to watch it again until it came out on DVD and then I just bought like almost every copy like all the different versions of it just to have it yeah this one is um, it's a really good perspective on because it's, it's all from the perspective of the kid so as a kid you really relate and you really uh, get into the mood of the movie and like just sort of put yourself in this uh, universe and uh, it's just it's very um um, it, it comes really close to uh, where what a kid would really feel in a situation like that. Yeah, totally. I, I totally relate because I was always like, man, I wish there was real monsters because then I could start a club like this and yeah. go fight them. Yeah, when you they know. had the club and the, the tree house and everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Rudy was like, hey, am I a part of the club now? Or <laughs> Yeah, that, that was really cool. Yeah, it was a good one. I, uh, I definitely recommend if you haven't seen this, uh, this is one of those uh, cult classics that uh, is a little under the radar, so you either heard of it or you haven't. And if you haven't, go look it up and find out where you can get a copy of it because it is a great movie. Alright, moving on. Uh, my number eight is from Stephen King. Uh, this is a 1989 film uh, called Pet Cemetery. Uh, this movie actually has a, a nice cast in it. It's got um, Fred Gwynn uh, from The Munsters, mm-hmm. played Herman Munster. He's in this. Uh, has Denise Crosby. She's from uh, Star Trek fame, actually the next generation uh, Star Trek fame. And uh, Stephen King himself is actually in this, but I think he, he does that with most of his movies. Yeah, he always has his real appearance. Kind of like M. Night Shyamalan does it. <clears throat> yeah. Has, has like a little one-off. Like he just plays a, a weird like five 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 to ten second character. Yeah, yeah. And this one he's like a priest or something, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like the preacher. Yeah. And just like all of Stephen King's movies, this takes place in Maine. <laughs> which yes. is a weird thing. Like he, I, he loves, I guess, where he lives. And, you know, he based almost every. I think he based almost everything in Maine. It's weird because the the premise of the story is the family moves from Chicago to a city in Maine. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So I thought this was a kind of a cool uh, 
premise of a movie uh, out of all his movies. Uh, I really like this one the best, uh, book-wise and movie-wise. I like the whole fact of you're able to bury something and it comes back to life. Uh, unfortunately, though, like everything has a price and a consequence. So, you know, what they find out in the movie is that, you know, that price and consequences, you know, what gets buried and comes back is never coming back the same. Yeah, this, this movie messed me up, man. When I first watched it, um, yeah, it, like just the tragedy of it and like the whole thing with uh, dealing with loss and uh, mourning and uh, everything like that, it, it was really like... I watched it kind of young, so it was really yeah, sort of heavy like. themes, you know, for somebody like that, just to learn um, about uh, death and like and like knowing that we're all gonna die someday, and uh, the grief that comes uh, from that. Yeah, but I mean, put put into these people's shoes, like if you were to be in that same situation, um, I would think the majority of the population would probably do the same thing, you know. They, they find that this mystical or mystical uh, place that you can bury something and it comes back to life. They tested it out with their cat, and you know the cat came back and was successful. They're like, oh my god, it did come back to life, you know. And then they had tragedy strike uh, in their, you know, in their household. So you know, grief-stricken parents. What are you gonna do? That's the first thing you think of is you want that person back in your life. So. I, like I said, I think the majority of the populace would, would probably do the same thing, not knowing the consequences. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's one of my favorite Stephen Kings. Um, next to The Shining, uh, I think The Shining is probably, like, if I had a top 11, my number 11 would be The Shining. But this is only top 10. Uh, number 7 is... Nightbreed. This is a 1990 uh, horror movie based on a 1988 novella called uh, Cabal. Uh, this is by Clive Barker. Uh, Clive Barker is a little eccentric uh, when it comes to a lot of his writings. Uh, this um, I originally had Hellraiser, which is also a Clive Barker. Also Clive Barker. Yeah. Um, title uh i had this as my original number seven but thinking back you know going going through my list i thought you know what i actually like nightbreed a lot more than i liked hellraiser really uh yeah i i mean hellraiser is very devilish in in that aspect um and the way that you know they torture people and and, you know they do their thing it 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 just it it didn't really stick to me like Nightbreed. Nightbreed was kind of one of those really cool dark fantasies that I was like, "What if?" So, the the main character, um, D, uh, Craig Schaefer, he he plays uh, Aaron Boone, who is uh, sort of a mental patient, um, and David Cronenberg, another famous. Yeah. Uh, horror director and writer uh, he actually plays this doctor that's treating him who's also a serial killer and convinces uh, Aaron Craig Schaefer's character uh, that he is the perpetrator of these murders and it's just this whole crazy like you know you're the you're the one who's been doing this and 
I'm going to keep you drugged up and, you know, keep you believing this. And it's not until his girlfriend starts investigating more and more about it. But while he's being, you know, sedated and having be put on all these drugs, uh, he runs across these people um, that are called the Nightbreed. And they, like, reveal themselves basically to him. Uh, he gets kind of like in a, a, a altercation with them. One of them actually bites him, which infects him. So now he has their um, their traits running through him. So somewhat like, uh, I guess going back to like Marvel, you know, like with mutations. Um, what happened here is it looked like uh, it, you know, must have been dormant into him that he was supposed to be like one of them. And then that bite basically like opened it up for him to transform into one of the night breed. So that's what happens is that he transforms into one of them um, and he goes to their, their where they live, which is underneath a cemetery uh, called Midian, which is this really crazy, you know, world, like underworld that they live in. Um, you see all different types of, of uh, creatures and, and, and things. Uh, and, you know, it's basically them trying to get back at that uh, doctor, uh, you know, trying to trying to either get rid of him or or like remove him from his position but he's he's trying to out the people of Midian you know uh, and then he wants to kill them because, because he's a, you know he's a psycho psychopath so um, but yeah it's it's a really cool it's really it's weird at first when I first watched it I, I just I had to watch it a second time because I kind of didn't understand what was going on with all the like psychoanalysis stuff that was happening in, in the doctor's office and yeah. while he was locked up. Because uh, I was also, like you said, when you were watching um, uh, Pet Cemetery, being young, um, I was also young when I watched this. So it was just kind of one of those I had, I, I watched it and I just wasn't really paying attention that much to it. And then I had to rewatch it to actually understand, you know, what was, what was actually happening. So I could, you know, have a better understanding of of who these people were and you know what the premise of the story is um yeah that, that's interesting uh, my experience with this movie was completely different i didn't <coughs> see it until i was like in my 20s really because um i just didn't know about it but i knew uh of these uh, marvel uh, published these comics these nightbreed comics and i would read them sometimes and i didn't know exactly what it was but like i knew a little bit of the of the lore about uh Midorian or, or this place it's called Midorian? Midorian? Midian Midian and uh, so I kind of I heard these words before and uh, I knew some of these characters like the, the character with a, that looks like a porcupine or something that, that shoots like quails at you and stuff like that yeah yeah uh, um, so I, I had seen these before um, but um, I came across the movie later much later and uh, obviously the, the, the names Clive Barker and uh, David Cronenberg jumped out at me and I was like, okay, whoa, what is this, you know? And yeah, the, the whole thing with the, I think the name of the, or at least in the comics, they call them Buttonface, the, the serial killer persona. Mm. And um, Yeah, that's what I thought his name was actually, because I've seen a lot of like uh, media that had the like the posters and, and the stickers and things like that and that's basically what was printed with it um, but looking at like the actual paperwork here it shows that you know, he was Dr. Decker 
but his uh, mer- his serial killer persona is named Curtis. Mm, okay. <laughs> That's just a, a random ass name. Curtis, a psychotherapist who doubles as a masked serial killer. Okay. Yeah, so like Curtis doesn't sound scary, you know. Buttonface sounds scary. Yeah, uh, that, that's how I knew him. And uh, but yeah, the whole thing where like he actually becomes a monster in the process of trying to destroy them. It was interesting that the monsters here are the good guys and the humans are the bad guys. Yeah. In this one, right? Well, that's humanity for you, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's my take on. Uh, on Clive Barker, um, I preferred Nightbreed over Hellraiser. Good uh, pick, good pick. Yeah, and if, you, like haven't, if you haven't seen it, um, definitely check it out. There's actually two versions of it. They release a director's cut, um, and they have actually, no, actually, there, I'm lying, there's three versions. There's a director's cut, and then there's a cut called uh, the Cabal Cut. And if you could find that one, that's the one to watch. That's got all the the left out, cut out, you know, on the, on the floor scenes and stuff that you want to make sure that you... I'm one of those guys who like when someone records or video, video when someone films something I want to watch all of it I don't yeah. care how bad it is like I want to see it from start to finish you know if you filmed it I want to watch it you know? and if you have those extra features on those are the those are the DVDs that I'm buying is yeah. it's not is buying everything that had the special features on the cutscenes um, I don't want to just watch a regular movie and knowing that you know those scenes were cut out because a lot of times it may not be relevant. They cut it out for time, but it's relevant to the story. Yeah, yeah. It brings context to a lot of things that sort of are left unsaid in the originals. Yeah, um, the costuming was incredible. Uh, I really liked all the costumes. Like uh, cosplayers today would, would be put to shame by some of these costumings. Yeah, yeah. The it's it's outrageous, like how good they looked. Um, you know, and how original. You know, and I, I don't know if it was Clive himself uh, doing the sketches of, of the of each of these characters or if he had yeah like the character know, design and all that or if he had somebody you know doing it for him I'd have to look more into that but I know he's he's a little bit of an artist himself so he likes to okay he likes to do like the doodles and, uh, and, and create like his own little characters and his own little world but yeah I'll, I'll have to look into that and get back to listeners on this all right so that was number seven uh coming in at number six uh from 1987 is lost boys so i like vampires i like vampires a lot and i thought this was a great vampire story um coming of age kids you know, also on the reference of, of the Lost Boys, basically taking off like Peter Pan and Neverland. Um, you know, just like the vampires, they never grow up. So you know, it was a it was a nice uh, nice choice of name for the movie for them. Yeah. You know, you got this family that uh, had just recently moved to this new town. You know, you want to make friends. Uh, you just don't want to make the wrong friends, and that's what happened here. Um, so this is a uh, Joel Schumacher movie uh, back in 1987, and this one has a real terrific cast of Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, Jamie Gertz, uh, Edward Herman, and Diane Weist. Um, also has where do you go? Alex Winter. 
I love Alex Winter because I love Bill and Ted's Excellent yeah. Adventure. So when I saw him, I was like, I know that guy. So it was cool. But yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a pretty cool um, little ditty that they uh, that they put together here. Um, and it's also got that uh, that saxophone player that Tim, Tim Capello. Yeah, that yeah. basically started the whole like uh, movement of you know needing to have like some half naked guy playing some musical yeah. instrument in the in the late 80s early 90s movies uh, up until like they started basically casting him as the same role in, in a lot of older movies like um, you know, later 90s and, and 2000s yeah totally uh, he, he made it a iconoclast to uh, uh, he, he made a, a saxophone cool for the 90s again right yeah yeah yeah, back in the day when, you know, it was, like, a cool thing for jazz, and then, like, it yeah. just became, like, oh, it's just, you know, another musical... Yeah, it's old-timey it, or whatever. Yeah, musical instrument that nobody really cares about, and then he comes out on stage and is just, like, you know, all ripped up, muscular, and, you know, just playing this badass fucking song, and he's, like, the main attraction. It's, like, fuck guitar, you know, and, and the rhythm section and, and vocals, you know, this guy's just tearing it up with the fucking saxophone. It's it's pretty cool. <clears throat> but yeah, th- uh, this movie um, for like I said, I like I love vampires and I love vampire stories, um, and I thought this was such a cool uh, take on on vampires. Um, you know, the the coming of age and uh, young teens basically uh, taking you know the, taking life into their own taking life and matters into their own hands and. Um, but like every vampire, you know, they have a sire. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of a twist in the movie um, with it. So that's that's kind of was really cool. So it was a very well written movie as well. Um, yeah, they went on with the classic tropes of the of the vampire lore, but like, yeah, it sort of br- brought it back down to uh, a more contemporary feel, uh, especially with the kids who like. Uh, everything they know about about vampires is from comic books because they 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 gather at this one comic book store in the town, and uh, they even have like their own comic book to give to people uh, to sort oh, of yeah. uh, a guide. Yeah. Uh, so we got we got the Frog Brothers who run the comic book store. Right. They uh, they befriend the younger brother who's played by Corey Haim, uh, Corey Feldman, and what is the other guy's name? Jameson Newlander, um, so they they play Edgar and Alan Frog, yeah. um, and then Corey Haim is uh, Sam, and then his older brother is Michael, who's played by Jason Patrick. So he's the one who befriends um, Keith Sutherland and his group, the Lost Boys, um, and so the Frog Brothers in the in the comic store, yeah, are basically educating uh, young Sam on you know the the whys and and the do's and don'ts, you know, for, for living in their sa- their their small town of uh, Santa Clara, um, you know, and what to look out for and how to prepare. Yeah, the aesthetics of this movie, uh, I mean, quintessential 80s stuff, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Everything from, you know, the look, you know, the, the wardrobe and how they talk and also being, you know, based in California. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, definitely full of all that yeah uh, the first thing that comes to mind is Corey Hames 
like that jacket that he's wearing in, in, in that first part where he goes into town. He's got like this long jacket but with like those 80s like sort of like bright colors. Uh, that, that stood out to me because usually those kind of coats are dark in color. Yeah, I think like, like I think the neon thing was like huge, like in, yeah. the, in the mid to late '80s. Yeah. So totally, totally ages in that one. Um, next, coming in at number five is The Exorcist, 1973. Um, actually, I think I have that in your pile. Yeah, I got it. But we did a whole podcast on our last podcast on The Exorcist and The Exorcist yeah. movies. Yeah, what, what, what haven't we said about this one? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, Although I did read a couple things that I saw that um, the writer of this movie, William Peter Blatty, was actually in the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he plays... If I'm not mistaken, he, he plays um, the director? No, no. You know, he plays the producer. He plays the, the producer, the producer yeah. of uh, Ellen Burstyn, who's a, she's an actress in the movie, um, playing an actress, and the producer of the movie that she's supposed to be doing is the writer of the actual uh, book, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, and I also didn't know that either. So, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, there's not really much to tell. I mean, if you've listened to the other podcast. You know everything and anything about the about the Exorcist is in there. Um, if you haven't seen it, shame on you. You should see this. This is definitely one of the greats uh, from 1973. Like I said, it's written by William Peter Blatty. Uh, this is directed by William Freakin, um, and it's just you know it's got awesome awesome acting in it, um, except for some things with Linda Blair. But, you know, those are obviously the memes of everything, you know, with her throwing up the, the pea soup or, yeah. you know, or you see some comedy things of them saying guacamole, guacamole, because <laughs> it's all green. But, you know, um, but yeah, it's, it's you know, Max, Max von Sydow, um, you know, just you couldn't get any better than him. Uh, he's, he's definitely one of the, uh, the great actors of our century. So Jason Miller was great in it too. Was it? Yeah, I read that he actually died um, very young um, after this movie, which uh, I thought he did a lot more roles. But looking into him, um, I didn't see he do very much after. Yeah, that, that that's unfortunate. Good actor. Yeah, but yeah, uh, definitely a really really well written story. Um, and you know just uh it's just one of those things that like they get you like i explained before too like when i first saw it like i i saw it in the theater uh and just really thought i was in the wrong movie just from the beginning because they were in iraq and i was just like this doesn't look like the exorcist or at least i don't remember this being the exorcist because when i actually first ever saw it i was already watching the scene where the the, the mom ellen burston's character was having that party um, so that was well past, you know, the the, the first sequence. Yeah, yeah, the first sequence uh, where Father Marion is, you know, helping that archaeological dig, uh, and then where he sees the uh, statue of uh, Azizu. Yeah, yeah, it just, that that whole sequence just sort of establishes the uh, 
antagony of, between uh, both of these characters, the, the demon and uh, Father Mary. Yeah. Good sequence, good movie, just good, good horror right there. Yeah, definitely, definitely go check it out. Uh, and if you have, like I said, if you haven't seen it, definitely see it. And then I've also heard good things on a side note. Uh, the Pope's Exorcist. Um, oh yeah, I have to go watch that. Yeah, I still need to see it too. Your brother went and saw it. Yeah, and, yeah. and was telling me you got to go see this. This movie was awesome. I was yeah, like, yeah, I was like, Son don't, of a don't, bitch, give me any spoilers. I was like, man, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we played the trailer on the last podcast for it, and yeah, definitely, definitely want to uh, check it out. Um, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on uh, to number four on my list is another Wes Craven movie. It's from 1984. It's a little ditty I like to call A Nightmare on Elm Street. This one has relatively also an unknown cast. Um, This actually was Johnny Depp's first movie. Introducing Johnny Depp. Introducing Johnny Depp, that is correct. Uh, there are some people here that were character actors and well-known, like John Saxon. Uh, he plays uh, Nancy's father, who was played by Heather Lankenkamp. And um, Ronnie Bakley, or Blakely, sorry. She's a well-known character actress. Uh, Robert England was relatively also unknown, uh, and he plays the, uh, the character of Fred Freddy Krueger who was the Springwood slasher um, basically has come back from the undead or come back to life in dreams and is murdering the children of the people that murdered him uh, in retribution so another another story this was actually uh, directed and written by Wes Craven so this is all him um, so like I'm guessing back in the day, he was the Kevin Williamson of the time. Uh, yeah, but this movie was great. Um, really good story. Really intriguing. Uh, whole new premise of how somebody could be a, a serial killer. And I just thought it was I thought it was fantastic. The, the cast that they had were really well, uh, really well acted. Uh, everybody that, you know, played their parts. I, I didn't see anything that seemed kind of lame or... But yeah, everybody, everybody, everybody did a good job in the movie. Um, yeah, for, for me, the reveal uh, that the pants were actually uh, in cahoot, or just knowing that the entity was was a thing that they knew the whole story about Freddy and everything like that, and and, and that uh, uh, it was up to the kids to have to um, resolve the whole thing. And that's um, super shitty for the parents to yeah. <laughs> leave it to the kids. Oh, well, we fucked up, and uh, you guys are going to have to fix it for us. Right. Um, one uh, uh, thing that, that, that I noticed, because in rewatching these movies, I watched uh, Nightmare, and then immediately after I watched Scream, I noticed that uh, the actor um, that plays the, the police officer, or one of the, one of the police officers, uh, Joseph Whip plays Sergeant Parker, and then he is um, Sheriff Burke in Scream. 
Really? Oh. And then somebody has said, oh, uh, he probably uh, was so distraught from living on uh, on the town uh, 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 of what happened on Elm Street, he moved to uh, the other town, not knowing that that town was crazy oh. too. <laughs> moved from Spring, uh, was it Springwood? Or Spring, yeah, Springwood. Uh, moves from Springwood to uh, Woodsboro. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's the same actor, and uh, he in both movies he plays a he plays a cop. So that's, that's kind of funny. Well, Robert England also has a uh, cameo in Scream too. He plays the freaking janitor, and his name is Fred. Oh, right. right. <laughs> I read that the other day. I thought that was actually pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, everything from this movie uh, I thought was great. Um, the music. The music for it was really good, uh, and then just the writing overall. Like Wes Craven was so creative, you know, and he came up with the fucking nur- that nursery rhyme, oh, yeah. you know, for Freddy Krueger, and that's yeah. just iconic, you know. Anything now with a, a nursery rhyme, what are you gonna think of? The first thing you think of is fucking Freddy Krueger. Yeah. So it's just yeah. Growing up, I thought that was like a real one, that <laughs> like an old one from old timey times, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he just you know took some liberties and, and changed a few things, but, um, but yeah, yeah, no, it's it, perfect. Yeah, it's it's definitely perfect. Like I said, uh, between that, the right uh, the writing and the, and the music that was chosen, um, I don't know who was it that did the music. I, I want to say it was like Harry Mancini. It was the name of um, of the uh, the composer for the music, but yeah, he did a terrific job. I mean his. It was eerie, like when you when you were listening to it, and it was like going on, like the, the neck, the hairs on the neck would stand up, or on your fore on your forearms, like you, you would just you'd be creeped out. And that's that's you know that's them doing the fucking a great job when you can do that with music, you know, where it provokes like that emotion, you you you've knocked it out of the park. Yeah, yeah, it becomes like almost another <clears throat> character in the movie. Moving on to number three. So my, I, okay, I had a couple of um, changes in my lineup. Hellraiser was one of them. So you know, my number seven was Hellraiser, then I changed it to Nightbreed. Uh, and this is another change. So my original was An American Werewolf in London, uh, John Landis. Great movie, 1981. Um, tran- the transformation scene was just fucking out of the park. Like, that was scary as shit, watching someone transform into a fucking werewolf. Like, you're just like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, but the movie that scared me the most as a child, as a werewolf movie, was Silver Bullet. So, um, which is also another Stephen King movie. Um, so, this movie, um, also has Corey Haim in it. Um, also has Gary Busey, who um, later in life had a motorcycle accident and kind of was a little, uh, I, I don't know if he went crazy or it just really messed with his head. So, like, you know, he gets a lot of, like, a lot of shit for it, um, you know, for just some of the things that he says or the way he acts. Uh, but no one really realizes, you know, that's from a motorcycle accident. He's not doing it on purpose, and he's not like, he's not being like that because, you know, yeah. he, he thinks it's funny. You know, it's it's a mental 
thing you know that happened to him so it sucks and you know but before that happened he was a really good actor uh, I liked Gary Busey a lot you know, he did a lot of really good things um, you know and obviously he, that motorcycle accident is going to fall on for the rest of his life you know as, as that stigma which sucks but uh, yeah this movie this movie was really good um, I quite enjoyed it a lot um, this was based off of Stephen King's uh, novella Cycle of the Werewolf and like I said, it has Gary Busey and Corey Haim. Um, has Terry O'Quinn. He's a, a very well-known uh, character actor. Uh, wasn't he also in Lost? Was he one of the guys from Lost? I think he was the uh, that, the bald guy. The bald, the older bald white guy. Uh, I don't. On Lost? Yeah. I want to say that was him. Um, I could be wrong. But yeah, um, the premise of this story is that um, there is a werewolf in town and he's killing people. And the character of Corey Haim is out one day who also happens to be paralyzed. Uh, so he's in a wheelchair. So he's already pretty much fucked uh, from point one, you know, especially in a town where there's a monster, you know, lurking about like, How's he? How's he think he's gonna be getting away? Um, so he's attacked one night um, at this garage, and he finds a way to. What was it like? I think it was like a firework. Um, he like shoots at the the werewolf in the, in the eye. Yeah, yeah. His uncle gives him a bunch of fireworks, <clears throat> but tells him to keep them. But instead of doing that, he goes out into the woods and starts uh, uh, firing off some of them. And that's when he gets attacked. Yeah, he is from fucking Lost. Oh yeah, that's him. He looks so different, though. Yeah, he I mean, he's so he's, he's older, obviously. Um, but yeah, the Terry O'Quinn uh, is also in this. So I'll get him back. So yeah, the so the werewolf uh, goes to attack him, and he fires off you know one of the bottle rockets or whatever whatever rocket it was, and hits him in the eye. And so now. He's basically trying to convey this story to people, and people aren't really believing him. Yeah. Uh, and then we see the pastor shows up with an eye patch. Yeah. So now he's kind of putting two and two together, thinking, "What the fuck?" Um, and it's just this whole like cat and mouse game uh, that's happening throughout the entire movie, uh, where he's like trying to figure it out, but also you know trying to investigate it um, little by little without you know the the pastor realizing you know that he knows that it's him even though i think he knows i mean he's not stupid so but yeah it's it's very very suspenseful uh scary as fuck it, it just it got me worse than, than american werewolf in london uh, just the suspense the overall suspense because i can imagine myself as that little kid in a wheelchair you know and then now there's a fucking werewolf like lurking about you know, what am I going to do I'm not going to be able to out race a werewolf in my wheelchair yeah this one was interesting I think uh, it, it feels like Stephen King sort of because a, a, a lot of the stories he tells are from the perspective of kids and uh, yeah uh, this one really drives it home uh, Gary Busey has a really cool story arc where he's like an alcoholic at first he's like that cool uncle you know um 
but he's an alcoholic he, he's always drunk and he has like this really cool like story arc where like he stops drinking and like he, he becomes uh, like a little bit more wholesome and uh, that's when um, uh, the, the, the Corey Haim character uh, asks for his help at first he doesn't believe it but little by little the whole thing the whole movie is you're wondering oh, who, who, who's the werewolf right and then the, the big reveal comes up um, yeah, it's really well uh, a piece together. Yeah, when he finally decides to take um, Corey Haim's side on, on, you know, well, I think you're telling the truth, you know, he starts doing the things that he can do. You know, like, he goes to the sheriff and tells the sheriff, hey, you need to investigate this. You need to see, you know, what the fuck's really going on in this town. So, and, you know, he's he basically had his back the entire yeah, time. Yeah, the entire time, yeah. Bill, builds him that. Because... Um, I don't know if he builds the first silver bullet, but he, he, he sort of builds the second one, right? The, the more, the faster, cooler one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool how they, they built, like, the little uh, race shell, like, around his wheelchair. Yeah, and, and the whole thing where they actually build a silver bullet from their pendants, uh, his sister, because his sister is the, the narrator the entire time, right? So, yeah. Uh, they, they, they both uh, take their pendants, which are, like... Um, one of them is like a medallion, and the other one's maybe a crucifix or something, and they melt it down, they go to this one guy that makes the bullet, and all of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, it says right here that they had to convince uh, their uncle to uh, to take uh, Jane's silver cross and Marty's silver medallion to a gunsmith. Yeah. Who melts them down and creates the silver bullet uh, for the gun. Yeah, and, and even the gunsmith is... Uh, he's already like, oh, is this for a werewolf or what? <laughs> <laughs> so he already knew. So the, yeah, the, and, and the final showdown, uh, the, you know, the suspense of like losing the bullet and having to get it back and everything so they can shoot the, the werewolf. Um, yeah. Good stuff. Scary. Yeah, yeah, like I said, it's just suspenseful, super suspenseful, you know, and being a young kid when I watched it, I was just like, man, this was like more than my little heart could take. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, uh, coming in at number two, um, this one, I couldn't decide between the two, so I combined them because they're basically the same movie. Uh, just one is from 1931, and the other one is from 1992. Uh, and this is Dracula, or Bram Stoker's Dracula. So I have... Um, I guess it's in your pile. Um, I have those uh, tied at number two, because like I said, I couldn't decide, and I love both of them equally. Um... I, think, I find it's funny how they, they label this one as English language film. Yeah, because yeah. they had that because they had that Spanish version one, which I thought was super cool. Like, yeah, interesting, uh, uh, interesting fun fact. Uh, they actually filmed the uh, the 1931 English language film and the Spanish language film at the same time, but with different actors. Obviously, the Spanish one was with uh, Spanish-speaking actors, which was interesting. I, I was watching it, and uh, some of the actors are like like the 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 guy who plays um, Count Dracula, uh, he's uh, uh, his name is Carlos uh, Villarías. He plays uh, the, the Count. He's uh, from Spain, so he has a a, a different Spanish accent. Uh, Lupita Tovar uh, plays Eva, 
she's uh, Mexican American. She she has a different accent in Spanish. And then we have the guy that that plays uh, Renfield, uh, Pablo Alvarez Rubio. He's Argentinian, so he has a different uh, <laughs> accent. So like, it's it's kind of funny to see them all interact in, in, in all the different Spanish accents. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, Spain and, and Mexico have have huge huge accent differences yeah uh, with spain heavily on the ths so a lot of the th- th- sounds yeah. that they they pronounce things with um yeah it's almost so, like like the difference between like british english and american english yeah so you can definitely spot someone that's not you know speaking actual like uh mexican spanish to be they're speaking like uh spanish from spain and you're just like hmm yeah <laughs> you're not a firm around here are you but that was interesting, seeing like the same sets, but different in different angles with different actors. It was, it was interesting to see it. Yeah, that's cool. Like that's smart on their part, you know. Especially from being that long ago that they were doing that. Um, you know, you don't hear of them doing that now. You know, it's it's if there's a, a Spanish or a, I guess a foreign language version of you know a, a popular movie that comes out, they just build all new sets. Yeah, yeah. Basically, so, they filmed two movies at the same time, almost. Yeah, that's like I said, that's completely smart, and, and probably like it would be in studios' best interest to do things like that. Oh yeah. Save money because Save a lot not, of money. They're not, you know, building two different sets and, and it being looking different, you know, because this is almost like uh, I think you said it was somewhat shot frame for frame. Somewhat, yeah. They they had some differences. Um, but yeah, it was basically the same the same thing. They used basically the same film and crew, everything. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, um, Dracula and Bram Stoker's Dracula. So 1931 Dracula. Uh, this movie is directed by Todd Browning and uncredited uh, Carl Freund, um, which I didn't know. I didn't know it had two actual directors. Uh, I just thought it had the one. But it's based off of the uh, story uh, from Bram Stoker. Uh, the the director actually got the legal rights to create this movie um, because there was a, a legal action that was happening um, when the movie Nosferatu came out, and they uh, they were being they basically sued. He they sued the guy who created Nosferatu and yeah. won. Uh, oh, the widow of of uh, Bram Stoker. Of Bram Stoker. So she she took it, you know, matters in her own hands because she never gave permission. But uh, yeah, this is the uh, this is Bella Lugosi at his finest. Um, you just couldn't get a, to me a better Dracula, at least until I saw uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Gary Oldman took over the role. And I just thought, uh, two Draculas, these guys are the sequential Draculas of, of movies for me. Um, Bela Lugosi, you know, played the part to a T. I mean, I think he probably thought in his mind that he was Dracula when, yeah. he, was, when he was filming this movie. Yeah. Um, just was, he was Hungarian, right? Yeah, he so was he, Hungarian. Yeah, so he already had that little bit of an accent that played perfect. Um, to the character so and he had that look you know, he was he was really like had those looks um every everything from this movie to like white zombie he had like he made these looks and uh 
it was just you knew that it was him obviously but like he made those movies with these looks like he can convey you know to an audience you know all these different types of emotion with these looks um, yeah yeah a little eye acting i think it's called yeah yeah he was like the master of it it seemed yeah. like uh yeah so the i love this movie um like i said this was one of the uh this is one of the first uh, monster movies that i watched after i watched um Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein because that's that's what struck my my love for these horror uh, uh, beings, these horror villains, and um, yeah, it just after I watched Dracula, I was just like, oh, I gotta watch all everything now. So, and then it wasn't until um, 1992 when um, Francis Ford Coppola put out his movie Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, starring Gary Oldman that I just thought it was it was like a, a brand new version of, of the original Dracula and it was set in modern time you know we had obviously better uh, filming equipment and, and sets and and you know the story was a little more lavish and, and more in depth um, compared to like the original 31 and they were able to you know, touch upon a lot more things of the novel than the original but you know the original conveyed it pretty well to the book um but yeah the 92 one i thought was just as good uh, just and then also has a great cast gary oldman like i said uh winona writer uh, keanu reeves which a fun fact about this is that winona writer will tell everybody under the fucking sun that she is married to keanu reeves because <laughs> they were married in the film um and they were married by an actual real village priest so she considers them to still be married because they never <laughs> were divorced or anything like that so she's like yes Keanu Reeves is my husband so in her mind that was a real wedding yes in her mind it was a real wedding I'm guessing <laughs> and she won't let it she won't let it up uh, you know to anybody she's like no yeah we're married so he's my husband I mean in her defense that is Keanu Reeves we're and, talking about yeah, yeah. You know, if I was a woman, I guess, you know, I would be saying the same thing, too, if I was married to him. Yeah, yeah, he's my husband. Back away. Um, but, yeah, they just recently did a movie. I don't remember the title of it, but when they were doing the promotion of that movie, that was one of the things that was brought up um, during their Q&A. And, yeah, she was, like, right there. She's like, yeah, we got married. And she's like, they brought a real village priest, and this is 100% real. And. And you can see in his his eyes, he's just kind of like, uh, okay. Where's the exit? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm just gonna give this to her. Uh, and then uh, Anthony Hopkins, um, who played Van Helsing, uh, in it, you know, uh, great cast. I actually just read that uh, one of the brides uh, was uh, Monica. Monica uh, Bellucci. Yeah, Monica Bellucci. Oh yeah. Which I didn't actually notice that. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't recognize the other two um, actresses that were the other two brides. But yeah, Monica, she's she's made a name for herself. Um, Carrie Ells, he was in it. He played uh, Lord uh, Holmwood in it. I think he was the uh, he was the guy who was supposed to be Lucy's husband or or to marry Lucy. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah him he's one of those guys that i'm always like hey it's that guy yeah and he he obviously he made a big name for himself uh with the princess bride 
Um, and then also when they uh, had the Saw franchise, he was in the first Saw movie. Right, that's him. Yep. Um, who plays <coughs> Renfield? It's uh, Tom Waits. Oh yeah. Tom Waits play, plays Renfield. Yeah, I knew I knew that. Um, uh, oh, it's crazy. Like he's such a good good musician. Like he's got that distinct voice. Yeah. So and then he was like his his demeanor and, and everything in the movie. He was just very psychotic. Yeah, he was good, right? Yeah, he was really good. I thought he was obviously better than the the Renfield from Thirty One. Um, but that guy, he did a, he did a great job, you know, conveying like what a fucking crazy loon he was. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, the both both movies start the same but different, right? Because the uh, the Bell Lugosi, you see Renfield come in, and then that's when they go to London. And then in the uh, in the Bram Stoker's, it's um, Ken Reeves's uh, uh, Jonathan Harker like that first meets, yeah, goes yeah. out to meet him. Because in, in the beginning of the movie, it's actually the uh, it's like the backstory of how he becomes Dracula um, with his war, right. uh, being Vlad Tepish yeah. um, with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and then, but yeah, the first uh, the first scene of the castle for like of the of the film. Uh, with old Dracula is is Jonathan Harker, so. But yeah, those are those are my choices uh, for Dracula. I couldn't choose between them, so fuck it. <laughs> Both of them are number two. <laughs> Tie. That's right. All right, and finally, my number one is gonna be John Carpenter's Halloween, 1978. This quintessential movie I think um, as a slasher film was the scariest fucking thing I've ever seen when I was a kid that's why it's my number one this gave me nightmares Um, I couldn't imagine anybody that didn't speak wearing the mask that he wore that had no expression no emotion uh, just heavy breathing, you know, and then also coming after you on one of the, the fun, like the one of the funnest nights, you know, that a, a kid could could live in uh, on Halloween. It just uh, it was just overall scary. I think this is also um, one of the reasons why I never asked my mom to have a babysitter, um, just because of the the story premise of you know. This, these babysitters are being stalked and you know murders are happening and it's like oh man you know if I get a babysitter is that something I'm going to have to worry about <laughs> yeah <clears throat> you know because I'm a little kid and I'm naive so I don't know any better um, but yeah this has a, uh, a really good cast um, obviously John Carpenter having his name uh, attached to it which is a funny story that he uh, he basically was asked to direct it and he said he'd only direct it for you know these reasons and then the last reason was I need my name above the film and they're like yeah sure whatever so that's why it's John Carpenter's Halloween um, but he wrote it with his writing partner um, was I think also his lover at one point um, and then obviously they just stayed friends uh, when things didn't work out between them uh, Deborah Hill so both of them wrote this uh, had the uh, had the great actor Donald Pleasance uh, play a role in it. Um, he didn't have very much time um, to do his roles for the movie. They basically shot his stuff and then was done. Uh, but 
I think he enjoyed it so much he made it his goal to come back and reprise his role as uh, Loomis in all, almost all the sequels up until 6 where he died during the making of it uh, also with the exception of 3 because 3 had nothing to do with Michael Myers so he wasn't in that um, but the virtually had a uh, relatively unknown cast um, to that point also Donald Pleasance was pretty much the only known actor um, in the movie but it had uh, Jamie Lee Curtis this was her first film so uh, introducing Jamie Lee Curtis had uh, PJ Souls. she's done some things uh, up to that point um, not A-list but you know at least to be known uh, and then there's also a funny story with uh, Nancy Loomis uh, who played Annie Brackett the, the daughter of Sheriff Brackett she's actually the wife of the editor for the movie uh, Tommy Wallace and they kind of needed an extra uh, female character and they asked her like hey what are you doing you want to be in this and that's basically how she got her role for it um, and then you have Brian Andrews who played Tommy Doyle you had Charles Cypress uh, who played Sheriff Brackett um, I'm not sure if Brian has done anything you know that has given him any type of recognition in his name or not but uh, Charles Cypress has gone on to do other roles uh, and he also uh, had a, a reprisal role uh, in, as a security guard in the uh, Rob Zombies Halloween and then uh, the girl that played Lindsay Wallace that was being uh, babysat by Annie Brackett and then also eventually became, uh, was babysitted by uh, Laurie Strode uh, was Kyle Richards. And she grew up to become one of the uh, famous housewives of Orange County, or not Orange County, I'm sorry, of Beverly Hills. Um, so that's where you'll see her name. Uh, and then she also came back in the uh, Blumhouse Halloweens to reprise her role as uh, Lindsay Wallace. So it was nice to see her uh, come full circle. Uh, and then you have uh, Nancy um, Stevens, who played uh, Marion Chambers. She was the nurse, uh, Loomis's nurse, to Michael Myers. Um, but yeah, uh, and then Nick Castle, uh, he played Michael Myers with the mask. And then uh, there was a guy named Tony Moran who played Michael Myers uh, unmasked. Um, and then also any of the the asylum scenes and stuff like that um, at his uh, age of 21. So, <clears throat> But yeah, this was, uh, like I said, overall this was uh, the movie that had just scared the crap out of me. Um, and that's why it's my number one. Uh, I just... I couldn't imagine anybody, you know, menacing like Michael Myers. Um, and that's why he's my favorite. I have uh, the thorn tattoo on me from uh, Curse of Thorn for episodes, or episode, uh, part six. Um, I, I used to have a ton of different masks, um, but, you know, through the years of, of wearing and, and making fan films and stuff like that, they all, you know, get used and abused and end up being thrown away. Um, I'm currently trying to actually do a fan film with one of our other uh, guys here at work. I bought the jumpsuit for him, so now I'm just looking for a really good copy of the mask. Um, and I think I'm probably going to get one that's close to um, the 2018 Halloween, uh, something along those lines, if not more of the Shatner uh, 78 one, which I think would be cool. Yeah, good choices, good choices. 
Yeah, but this was uh, all shot locally uh, in California here, um, where we're from. We're from Orange County, though, and this was shot mostly in L.A. and Pasadena, uh, places that you can still go visit. You can see where the original Myers house is uh, in Pasadena. It's like uh, some kind of law office now, um, which is super cool because you know, during hours that it's open, you can actually walk through and walk up the staircase, you know, where Michael walked up to go kill his sister and, uh, from when he was a little kid. Um, and then a lot of different of uh, the, uh, the neighborhoods and stuff where they shot uh, in L.A. Um, still pretty much look the same. Um, you know, obviously probably some different paint. And I think one of the places has a little bit different architect, uh, architecture uh, in the front, like they changed something up. Uh, but other than that, you can recognize it. Uh, and all this stuff can be found online. But yeah, this was uh, the number one grossing independent film of all time. Um, so you know, good job to John um, for having this uh, be a success that nobody thought was going to be. Uh, this was actually also originally titled uh, Babysitter Murders, um, even though in the notes here it says that uh, Erwin uh, Hublons, uh says that's false, but every other interview that I've actually seen him talk um, he says that's what it, that's what they were going to call it when he suggested why not have this all happen on one specific night and then it be Halloween night because that makes it scary. Which, again, like I said earlier, that's a fucking shitty thing to do to a kid who loves Halloween, you know, is to make a movie about someone, you know, killing babysitters and, and their, the, the kids that they're babysitting. Yeah. Even though he didn't kill anybody, you know, any of the kids, you don't know, you know, if, if he would have, you know. You don't know the mentality of, of, of that type of killer. So, but the overall film itself, like I get goosebumps um, when I watch it. Still, um, there's still some part of me that gets really anxious, um, that has that anxiety when I watch it. Um, it just it, it takes me away. Uh, I like the whole uh, persona of. of being lost in the movie um i don't think of it as like a horror movie like as i'm watching it i'm like engulfed in it um which is which is really cool so i definitely like movies that do that um that keep my mind um off of you know everyday things and and have me trapped into you know what's going on in their world but yeah that's uh that's my thing uh with halloween uh, i love michael myers always have always will um he's my boy so that's why halloween's my number one awesome um and then the last thing i want to touch on is the the music um you know we've talked about that with other movies um and do that with the nightmare on elm street uh the music for this also um the jonathan or jonathan <laughs> john carpenter um, did the score and the music for this as well, uh, all with the piano, you know, simple, simple, uh, keys, um, you know, just took a couple of them to make that iconic sound that, uh, that everybody knows, like as soon as you hear it, you know, that's, that's Halloween, um, everything from the, the buildups in most of the scenes to the actual iconic, uh, Halloween, I know, one, two, one, two, um, uh, piano that he does for it, um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just, I, I, I don't know, like, <laughs> can't really speak, uh, anything else about it, um, 
This is definitely one of the ones that you need to see if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, shame on you for being in a, being a horror fan. Um, but if you have, uh, you know, kudos to you. Let me know. Uh, let us know um, what your favorite Halloween is. Is it the original? Is it the uh, Blumhouse franchise? Is it the Rob Zombie? Is it the multiple timelines that they have going on? So drop us a line. Let us know. Yeah, totally. I, I want to say uh, the music is iconic and uh, it really makes it a, a really good uh, ringtone. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's one of my ringtones for uh, for later in the seasons, like getting closer to uh, like uh, autumn and, and Christmas. Yeah. Um, I have that and then the rest of the time, obviously, I have Star Wars. So nice. I'm a nerd like that. <laughs> but yeah, that's my number one, Halloween. Yeah, that's, uh, that's my top ten list. Um like it or, or hate it i don't care it's my list not yours so what you can do is you can send us your list tell us what your favorite top 10 movies are uh you know we would love to hear from you guys uh if you're out there listening you know there there are people listening i see it on youtube you know so definitely check it out and this is part one so we're going to be doing part two um with Olin's top 10 list that way he can talk and I don't sound like an idiot but anyways um, so I'd like to thank you guys for listening um, we also like to uh, thank our unofficial sponsor um, Liquid Death for providing well, actually they didn't provide I provided it <laughs> but uh, we would love for them to provide us these delicious delicious waters um the liquid death, death the plastic, murder your thirst. Uh, we have a couple different cans here. We have the mountain water and the severed lime. Um, I have yet to find the teas. Yeah, I haven't been able to see the. I was really intrigued about those uh, iced teas. Yeah, me too. I, I definitely want to try that. Uh, I haven't seen a armless Palmer. Just the names that they come out with for these these, these drinks are, are just awesome. Yeah, and the art that they put on the cans and the and the, and the boxes is yeah. really cool too. Yeah, definitely a really really dope campaign that they've got going on here. It's very smart. Um, but yeah, so um, we'd like to uh, give a shout out to you guys uh, as our unofficial sponsor, Liquid Death. Um, your cans provide our quenched thirst. So here's to you. Murder your thirst. Always hit the spot. All right, and as always, you can find our music uh, for the podcast is by a band named Zeo. Uh, they are Zeo Online. I believe is their website and you can find all the information for them on, on our website which is www.thehorrorscene.com you can also find all of our social media on Instagram Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr you can find our podcast not only on our website but on YouTube, on Rumble and you can find the podcast on anchor.fm which is now uh, podcasters for no Spotify for podcasters. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they had a name change, so I'm gonna have to update that on the board here. Uh, yeah. So 
check it out. Um, please give us a like, um, subscribe, help us out, uh, pass the word along, do what you got to do, you know, make us your number one horror podcast. So I'd like to also thank you guys again um, for listening. We really appreciate it. Remember, guys, to stay creepy and keep it spooky. From our grave to yours, these have been your last rites. I am one of your horror hosts, Brandon Brown, and always with me is my co-host, Owen Hernandez. And we bid you guys a good night. <laughs>